Horn, yes. and it appears to be working. Thank you so much for meeting with us. Of course. Um, so I'm going to start off with a question I'm asking everybody. So far, I have not been invited to moderate any debates, possibly because I'm not very moderate. But um, the, uh, the question I'm asking everybody, and this is working out. So the tech boom under me. You can certainly argue that there's been positive benefits and negative impacts, right? It's created lots of jobs. It's brought a tremendous amount of money to the city coffers. It's also led to a tremendous amount of evictions and displacement. On balance, and as I say, Mark, I'm asking this to everybody. On balance, are we better off now than we were seven years ago as a city, particularly vulnerable communities? I have seen this question in print, yeah. your print, yes. so it does not come as a surprise to me. And I don't know that I'm going to give you the definitive answer you want, uh, because there are multiple perspectives. And right. my life uh, as a public policymaker yeah. is multiple perspectives, and reality is multiple yeah. perspectives. So yeah. uh, you have laid it out pretty clearly yourself. There have been winners and there have been losers. Yeah. And depending upon whose numbers you look at, uh, we're certainly north of 100,000 people are no longer here in San Francisco. And that is heartbreaking. Uh, and not only those who have been forced to leave, but those who are struggling to stay, mm -hmm. that means sleepless nights yep. and fret and worry and stress and the degradation of a quality of life. Yep. Uh, that Those are all human prices that have been paid and since my purpose in being in public office is to be a voice for those who don't have one, uh, that impacts me uh, significantly. So I, I, I will come, let me go forward in this fashion. I get the sense that with this greater debate of tech good, new industries good, displacement, human suffering bad, as if there is no middle ground to be found, that the switch is either on or the switch is off. And I've seen a lot of hyperbolic concerns coming from some business voices, even about my campaign and the possibility of my being mayor, that it would be detrimental to a healthy business environment and the future of job creation in San Francisco. And I just uh, not only resist it, I reject it. Uh, that we can have a healthy business community, we can have job growth, we can have a bright future without all this displacement and that we can find a more moderate path forward. It doesn't have to be turned up to boiling point so that we see all of the downside for many and a great upside for a few. So talk about how you do that. I mean. Again, not to blame everything on Ed Lee, although he was mayor for seven years and he did set policy. And, and whatever you think of him personally, during his, poli his, his policy from his early days was job creation, job creation, job creation. And, and he doesn't dispute that, he never disputed that. And he went out and recruited tech companies to come here. And he went out and had Tech, tech Tuesdays and went out. He did everything he could to encourage growth of this one business sector. Which, by the way, as you well know, is not the number one business sector in San Francisco. Pardon. That's government, hospitality, and healthcare. Yes. Right? where people 
make considerably less. So, but he went out of his way to encourage this um, without, as you say, turning off the without saying, well, no, we're not going to allow anyone to create jobs here anymore. How do you do that? How do you make sure that there are still small businesses that are able to create jobs like your own? They were not all priced out by the, you know, by Uber and by big tech and by Twitter. How, how do you make that middle ground work? So, a couple ways to respond. So, all this job creation has now almost become understood to be jobs for people who don't live in San Francisco. Right. Yep. Uh, when we talk about jobs housing balance, mm -hmm. uh, let's say even the uh, Central Soma plan, there's an imbalance, only about a quarter of those new jobs will have housing provided. And that's going to create a problem because we're imagining all 45,000 of those new jobs are going to be filled by people coming from out of town. Right. Why is that the assumption? I would like to see a majority of those new jobs filled by people from San Francisco. And that has multiple benefits. I acknowledge that a lot of the jobs we're talking about may be very highly skilled, uh, high-tech jobs, and that there will be international searches to find the right people to fill those jobs. But I would doubt that they have to be filled by only people from out of town. I would imagine that with some appropriate training and education, we could have significant local hiring. Mm -hmm. And I would ask, first and foremost, have we looked at what these jobs will be? What are the qualifications for them? What kind of job training would be needed for San Franciscans? Because I would argue there are a lot of San Franciscans underemployed. Mm -hmm. So we've got a low unemployment rate overall, but we also know in some communities we have a not so low unemployment rate, pushing 10%, I'm sure, in some communities. But even where we are at 2 or 3 or 4% unemployed, what about the underemployment? People who are driving uh, these new uh, TNCs and barely scraping by, but they've got a college degree and they can't find anything else. So I don't think we're even doing the basic assessment of what kind of jobs are we talking about, what levels of skills are required, and what would be the, what would be the opportunity for much greater local hiring. How do you convince, I mean, in the old days of redevelopment, it was in the contract. If you opened a business in a redevelopment area, you had to sign a contract, and I know because we looked at this at the Guardian at one point, we were actually looking at a building in a um, redevelopment project area. You had to sign a contract that said, I will hire X percentage from the community. And that was part of the deal because you were getting cheaper land. Right? We don't really have that anymore. For better or for worse, we don't have the redevelopment agency. Right. How do you do that? Do you tell Twitter you don't get a tax break unless you agree to this much local hire? Do you tell people, do you tell Salesforce you can't build that tower unless you can guarantee me 50% of the people are local hire? I mean, what, what tools do you use to do that? So, Besides appealing to the good nature of the tech industry, which never really works. So I think in general terms, we call these things community benefit packages. And the community benefit package that San Francisco got out of the tax break uh, was 
I'll be uh, generous here, uh, insufficient. And beyond being insufficient, it did not have enforcement. Mm -hmm. There was no real requirement of much. So I don't think San Francisco struck a good deal. And we've got to be striking better deals for the city, not just for the industry, and better, and better deals for the people of San Francisco. Um, I want to talk about 827 just because I want to make sure that our listeners are very clear where you yes. are on 827 because there's been some confusion. You are opposed to this bill. I am opposed to this bill. Uh, some not uh, accurate reporting yeah. might have said otherwise, but I start every presentation with the following. I am opposed to this bill. Uh, now, I may have said before I'm opposed to this bill at the very first debate uh, by saying I understand the concept upon which it is written, and that's not a new concept. It's 30 years old. That it's called smart growth. We build denser housing along transit corridors. That is the concept behind the bill. I'm opposed to the bill. The concerns are that there need to be very significant uh, displacement protections. Now, I know that there are some amendments that deal with that. I've talked to some of the folks uh, in Sacramento, Western Center on Law and Poverty in particular, who have looked at these amendments. They don't know that they are sufficient to actually do what they intend to do. Uh, there's also the fact that when there is a public investment in transit corridors, especially transit-rich corridors, that's our tax dollars making these public improvements, that it creates greater value for the land and those who are developing the land along those corridors. Are we capturing for the public good enough of that added value? And that is another problem with the bill. Uh, there's no requirement for all this upzoning that there be affordable housing. And or that they pay for transit. Or that they pay for transit. I was, well, looking, at, I was looking at a building on Cortland Street for this presentation I did. And I just like I looked at the lot where the Good Life Grocery is. Right on Cortland, you've been there. That lot is just last sold for two million dollars, which seems like a lot of money, but it's a lot. It's a big lot, and it's got a grocery store. Right? Under eight twenty-seven, since that's a transit corridor, that could be zoned for eighty-five feet. You could put thirty-two units in there. Right now, that's a thirty-two million dollar lot because those units will sell for a million dollars each. Yeah. So that's a thirty million dollar transfer of wealth to the owner of that property, and. I see nothing anywhere that would allow the city to take a third of that, half of it, whatever, to fund transit. I mean, how else are we going to fund the transit? Right. So these are multiple problems with the bill, and they may or may not get amended in a, a reasonable fashion. Uh, but beyond that, there is the greater concern that I have as to whether we want to create another one-size-fits-all right. land-use statute for the state of California. Uh, for, for someone who has been as involved with trying to amend another one-size-fits-all land-use state statute called the Ellis Act, yep. I'm well aware that our housing situation in San Francisco, our rental situation in San Francisco, uh, and our crises in San Francisco is unique. Um, no other city is surrounded by water on three sides. We are in a very uncommon situation. And to have Sacramento tell us exactly what we can do and what we can't do is problematic. It doesn't tend to work. 
historically has not tended to work. So you've got to suggest, I think, in crafting any 827 or any other one-size-fits-all land use state statute, maybe you need to make the case as to how San Francisco, Bakersfield, Fresno, and Ukiah all have same problem. points in common sufficient that it requires a one-size solution. Yeah. So we're kind of coming at it backwards. We need to, maybe there's, all that should be in the findings. Yeah. Make the case, and then here's the solution. Yeah. That hasn't been done. So the bill, I always say that 827 is based on two premises, right? Aside from the fact that we all agree that urban infill and transit-oriented zoning is a, is a good thing. Right? It's based on two premises, I think. And one is that growth is always good, and we should just assume that we're going to grow really, really fast. We're going to have more and more jobs, more and more houses. We're going to continue to grow really fast. And the second is that the market will get us out of this eventually if we just let the market do its job. And I'd like to kind of, on the larger level, hear your response to those two presumptions. You know, we used to have a group in San Francisco called San Franciscans for Reasonable Growth. Way back in the day with Sue Hester and John Elberling and folks like that who said, it's okay to say we're growing too fast. That this city's infrastructure cannot handle 40,000 new jobs a year. That that's just too fast. And besides the housing impacts, there's an impact on everything in the city. We're just not able to absorb that. And we need to slow down. That's what Prop M was about. Really, was slowing down the rate of job growth in San Francisco. To, and, you know, and then, of course, there's the issue that I know you're well aware of, that you know, Calvin Welch talks about eloquently, which is that private sector housing solutions don't work in San Francisco. So I'm just interested in your response to those two things. Well, you double back on the point I made at the beginning, which it shouldn't be an on and off switch. Yep. We need a dimmer. Yep. So yes, we can grow. Yes, we can expand. Yes, we can create jobs. Yes, we can envision a healthy, vibrant San Francisco future, and one that is inclusive of all uh, without shutting it down without speeding it up, that there can be a more reasonable pathway for growth. So right now, a lot of affordable housing policy in San Francisco is based on inclusionary, which was your thing. I mean, you were the first one yes. to develop inclusionary housing at yes. like 12% and it freaked everybody out. But they somehow survived. And depended upon a study right. to take and, us forward. And the, the, the developers somehow managed to survive. Oz Erickson doesn't seem to be missing any meals. Right. They, they've, they've managed to survive. Right. Now it's at a higher level of inclusionary and they're still managing to survive. But the question is, there's a lot of folks who say, our affordable housing future should be based on market rate housing. That if we want, 5,000 affordable housing units, we simply have to build 20,000 market rate housing units because that's the only way we're going to get them. Which again is kind of saying that the private housing market is our salvation. How do you feel about that and what's the alternative? So getting back to the suggestion that the market will lead the way, uh, free market at that, that there really is no such thing. Yeah. Uh, there are rules of the road which direct exactly what the market can and cannot do. Many of those rules come out of Washington, some of them come out of Sacramento, and some of them are local. Uh, the recent tax scam out of Washington, of course, yep. shows us also clearly that it's not a free market. Right. Those at the top get a break. Those yep. who are below uh, are going to pay for it. And those are rules. They don't have to be written that way. Uh, locally, you can look at the Twitter tax break. 
that set the rules of the road. And if you fit a certain kind of business in a certain part of town, you were going to get a break. And what was San Francisco going to get in return? Did we get uh, the right? If you were mayor, would you have supported the Twitter tax break? Not with that community benefit yeah. package. Yeah. I mean, yeah. not without that community benefit package, and not with the lack of enforcement yeah. in it. Yeah. So, one of the other candidates for mayor has said that San Francisco needs to build 5,000 new housing units a year. I always smile when I hear that because, as you well know, San Francisco doesn't build housing. San Francisco hasn't built housing in 50 years, yeah. right? Developers build housing, right. and developers are financed by speculative investment capital. And, when ca and capital goes where the highest rate of return is. So it seems to me that by definition, if we built so much housing that prices came down, they'd stop building. Right? Almost by definition, because the return wouldn't be as high. Right? So what's the alternative? I mean, Jane Kim has suggested a billion-dollar affordable housing bond. Right? That's an alternative. Um, talk about your plan for building affordable housing beyond just inclusionary, which is important. But also, I mean, you've seen the, I think it's the Kaiser Marston study that shows that for every 100 units of market rate housing you build, you create an induced demand for 30 units of affordable housing. So if you're below 30%, you're actually losing ground, right? So how does, how does Mayor Leno address this? And that for every 10 units of new housing we're building, we're losing four? Yep, yep. Uh, to evictions yep. and... Yep. So, um, Clearly, over the past couple of decades, our, a major way of getting below market rate was, has been through the inclusionary zoning ordinance. Our housing crisis is not unique to San Francisco. It's a regional problem. It is a statewide problem. We're going to have to be working with our regional partners in a way that we have not in the past. Mm -hmm. And that means working with the mayors of Berkeley and Oakland and San Jose and everyone in between to come together and to address this. What are the housing needs of our population currently and going forward? What amount of housing do we need for those who are earning below 55% of area in uh, AMI, what number of housing units for each of these areas will we need for those earning up to 120? Those are the first steps. Then determine what the cost is going to be, and then come up with a revenue source. And it may be a regional affordable housing bond. Uh, it may be sales tax, I know that's less equitable, yep. but let's have that conversation and let's deal with it seriously. We can't, we're not going to solve it on our own and, let, and continue to partner with the state uh, where we're getting some benefits. Um, we also should be looking at what new and dedicated revenue source can we find for our small sites acquisition to the degree that we can take property off the speculative market and protect what affordable housing that we have. It's cheaper than building new housing. Yes, it is. So a couple things that have been suggested about that. One is a vacancy tax. I mean, you and I both know that as many as 
25 or 30% of the new condo units built in San Francisco are unoccupied. That's mostly Russian and Chinese money looking for a safe haven. And they just buy those as an investment. Nobody lives. This is also the case in Vancouver. It's the case in Manhattan. Right? We've all, Vancouver has such a tax. Vancouver has such a tax. Vancouver basically says if you're not Canadian, it's hard to buy property now, which has its own problems. And I, that, that's not a direction that I think any of us would want to go. But should we have a tax on vacant residential and, and vacant commercial? Because we have all these empty storefronts where the landlord's just waiting for the rent to go up. So let's take them one by one. Yeah. Uh, maybe better stated, a pied a terre. Yeah. So for those who are buying many of these new units uh, as safe deposit boxes in the sky, uh, with no intent of living there, uh, yes, we should be looking at a tax on that. Mm -hmm. What about uh, vacant commercial properties? I would look at that as well. Uh, conversations I've had with any number of different uh, merchants associations, uh, what I'm hearing is that, and I know this is the case here in Upper Market, that commercial landlords who are out of town and they may be insurance companies, yep. they could be pension funds. These are investments. Yep. And they're a part of a large portfolio of investments. Yep. And they're working with a local agent who's telling them, if you can sit it out, you're going to get more money. So they hold them open. Right. And they can swallow the loss. It's also a tax write-off. Right, because that's who's buying property in San Francisco now. Yes. Out-of-town speculative investment trusts. Yeah. And so we currently have a requirement that if you, landlord, have a vacancy for a certain period of time, you have to register that with the yes. city. I think it's around a $750 fee. Uh, but there's no compliance and there's no enforcement. And so there's little compliance because there's no enforcement. And so we don't even know the amount of the vacancies. And it wouldn't be hard for us to do a survey. But we don't even do that. And clearly $750 a year, which is not enforced, is Makes not a, dis a disincentive to keep it right. So we, we often use a tax system uh, to discourage behavior. Uh, we want to discourage the behavior of out-of-town commercial property owners uh, from keeping their properties empty, uh, that would be a good use of the tax. Uh, so the other part that I'm hearing from the merchant district associations is that a local property owner is more likely to negotiate uh, to meet the affordability of the entrepreneur, of the mom and pop who wants to open or extend a lease. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why those ones don't stay vacant as long. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, so there are ways to address this, and they require some some study. You, you don't do this haphazardly. You do it thoughtfully. Uh, you you get to again. You've got to survey what is the extent of the problem, who owns these properties, and what could be a level of taxation that would discourage. Uh, the vacancy and encourage. And keep in mind that when these properties and its uh, broken window effect uh, are left vacant for a long period of time, it impacts other properties on that block and then blight is created. And that tax is there to mitigate the damage of the blight. Now, um, 
With regard to the real challenge that we have on our hands with regard to the commercial vacancies, it's unfortunately a perfect storm of trouble in that not only uh, do we have this phenomenon of the out-of-town investor who's keeping these properties open, uh, we have a glut of commercial properties on the market. You would think supply and demand, right. uh, greater supply yes. would bring down the price. And it it's not happening right yep. now. Yep. Uh, add to that the challenge for all brick and mortar retailers because of the shift to online purchases, yep. it makes it even more difficult. Yep. Yep. Um, let me, I know Mark, you've got some questions too. I don't want to dominate all the time, but I just want to move from that into your homelessness program. And yes. a key element of that, I know, I'm sure you saw the public press report before you started doing this on, on how many empty SRO hotel rooms are yes. in the city. And it can't house all of the homeless population. No, it cannot. But you could make a huge start. You could yes, get 1,000 people off the streets tomorrow. Or more. Right. A lot of these hotel rooms are owned by very recalcitrant landlords who eventually want to turn them into tourist use. A lot of them are old and not up to code. Um, how do you make that happen? How do you, I think the public press story said if we could magically beam 1,700 homeless people into the existing vacant hotel rooms, we'd have a, but we can't magically beam them. Right. So how do we do that? So uh, there are carrots and there are sticks, yeah. and I think the board has tried a number of sticks. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how successfully they have worked. I'm happy to review all that. But we're going to need a partnership. We can't force people to use their private property in ways they don't want to, that we want them to. Uh, so I would open the door, the mayor's office door, and, and bring people in and hear from property owners firsthand what are the barriers that are keeping them from renting. I know that there are some financial incentives that may be challenging for us to overcome that would lead them to keep them empty. But let's bring them in as a partner with the city. Uh, I know oftentimes that it may be that there's concern that a challenge new tenant might have mental health issues or addiction issues. After 30 days, they're going to become a rent-controlled tenant. Uh, how can the city help you, property owner, deal with some of those concerns? Uh, Bevan Dufty has been a great resource of information for me. And uh, through him, I've learned about Pathways to Housing that's been very successful in Philadelphia. Uh, so they are the wraparound service. Uh, we've got something similar, but not as effective. Uh, so you landlord don't have to worry about something that might happen with that tenant. You can call 24-7 or your front desk can call 24-7 and the city will be responsive with the social service that is necessary. If there's damage to your property, Pathways to Housing will take care of that for you. So. We, we hear from the property owners firsthand. What are your concerns? How can we work with you to address those concerns? And then it's a negotiation of price. And so the question then, of course, is how are you going to pay for it, Leno? Yeah. Well, let me say, first and foremost, if this is a top priority for the city, and I think everyone I've talked to, everyone I've talked to around town, it's the first thing out of their mouth, it is a top priority. 
well then let's acknowledge it as such and put our money where our mouth is and finally deal with it. And if you're going to be cynical and say, yeah, 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 we've heard these plans before, or it's just too expensive, we can't, well then I have to hear your, what you're saying is that this is no longer a crisis, it's the status quo, and get used to it. It's just the way it's going to be, and I won't accept that. It's, it's too heartless to see 3,500 people living where they should never be living, which is on our streets. And it's no good for the rest of us who are living under a roof. To say that you can't solve this problem is to give up. Of course you can solve this problem. It's just a question of, as you said, the price tag. If we could magically tomorrow end the Ellis Act and Costa Hawkins and float a $10 billion bond in San Francisco to build 10,000 units of immediate supportive housing, all right, we could solve that problem. Now, I'm not saying that the city can afford a $10 billion bond, and I'm not saying that the state legislature is going to repeal the Ellis Act and Costa Hawkins, but it's... It's a solvable problem. Yes, there are steps we can do. Okay, there are steps we can take in that yeah. way. Okay, I know, Mark, you have a bunch of questions. Now. Uh, and just a little bit more on the funding. Yeah. Uh, there will be immediate savings. So we're, yes. we're wasting a lot of money. Yeah. First and foremost, we need to really review and audit everything we're doing yeah. with regard to the amount of money we're spending both on homeless services and on formerly homeless. I know about two-thirds of an approximately $300 million budget is spent on housing in a permanent supportive fashion those who are formerly homeless. And voters don't understand a lot of that. So let's make sure that we are spending as efficiently and as effectively as we possibly can because we're going to need to make that case to voters if we're ever going to ask for more money. Then, the money that we're wasting and spinning our wheels and making no progress. Recently reported that the Department of Public Works is spending $60 million a year on one line item, the cleaning of streets. But half of that is being spent on the cleaning of sidewalks. Yep. And they're back again next week. So that's waste. Yep. And the messy sidewalk, the messy street is not the problem, it's, it's a system. symptom of a problem. And if you're just addressing the symptom, you're not making any progress. We've got to deal with the problem, which is that 3,500 people are living where they should not be living. And we can do something about that. So then, there's immediate savings to DPW. There's savings to the uh, to Department of Public Health, because the longer people are on our streets, the sicker they're getting. The more often they're using ambulances and the emergency room. So there's savings there as well. There's also savings with the police, who are distracted from their job of keeping us safe, because they've got to deal with a problem that shouldn't be theirs. And maybe then they could be dealing with the auto burglaries and the home break-ins. Uh, so across the board, there will be positive ramifications when we finally deal with this. Mark, you're up. Awesome. Um, I wanted to just address quality of life in San Francisco in terms of disappearing businesses and protecting some of the small businesses and more established businesses that make living here what it is and was just at Sunrise Cafe in Mission uh, and uh, the, the rent was doubling and so Sunrise is going to have to close. Um, what are some steps you would take to preserve businesses that are small businesses that keep the character of the city in their neighborhoods? And I guess as a sub of that, on a citywide level, how do you feel about things like commercial rent control and um, maybe right of first refusal for businesses whose properties have been sold? So uh, we made some real progress with our legacy business plan uh, to the degree that we can sustain it and augment it. Mm -hmm. As well as our cultural districts. 
which raise consciousness and can really focus greater attention on, on the need of preserving uh, that which is working. Uh, of course, not every business is going to survive forever. Uh, there is natural attrition. Uh, not every business concept, every business plan is sustainable. But that's what the legacy attention is about. These are businesses that have worked and are now under a new kind of challenge, which is the greater pressure of the changing city. And there are things, there are parts of what is existing we do want to save for the greater good. It is the quality, it is the fabric, it is the taste, it's the flavor of San Francisco we want to preserve where we can. Again, there will be market rate development, there will be a changing city, that is a given. What can we require of the developer to make sure that surrounding businesses that will be impacted by greater cost pressures, how can they contribute to the sustainability of the existing neighborhood? That's a, a, a big question that should be addressed with every agreement that goes forward, and that should be done at planning. If we could have commercial rent control, if the state would let us, would you support that in San Francisco? That's a big change. I, I don't, I'd have to give that real thought. Uh, again, uh, business different from housing, everyone deserves a place to live. No, not, I understand. Not, not, yeah. not every business is necessarily, by the fact of it, a going idea or going concern. Mm -hmm. So how you separate that out, I, I'm not quite sure. But if you had commercial rent control, it wouldn't have to be like residential. It could be 25% every three years. I mean, you could... Right, you could regulate it at, if we had the ability. Yeah. It, it, would, it could be regulated in a variety of different ways. And that's something you'd look at. Yes, it is, certainly. Um, speaking kind of more about the character, uh, I know that there's kind of a crisis in arts um, with so many artists and people who create um, forced out of the city due to yeah. housing. Um, but also, you know, there's, there's kind of under Ed Lee, there was kind of a funneling what a lot of people thought was a funneling of arts funds towards projects that might be art washing certain neighborhoods, like making mid-market more palatable, making the tenderloin more palatable, palatable um, for, let's say, gentrification or redevelopment by putting arts outposts in there. How would you preserve the art scene, or how would, what steps would you take to preserve the art scene as it is in San Francisco now from the housing crisis? And what are your thoughts on art our art scene being kind of conglomerated in these certain neighborhoods. So when I was on the Board of Supervisors working with the then Late Night Coalition, there was a real concern about the survival of late night entertainment in San Francisco. And so we created an entertainment commission. And Part of its charge was to deal with some very specific issues that impact the industry uh, with the stated desire that we want to sustain this industry and we don't want to see it fade away. And at the time, and this is going back almost 20 years, uh, and it was at the height of the dot-com boom, so there are similarities between what was going on then and now, and all of the residential development that was making its way into parts of town where there was existing entertainment. And then you had people moving in and then complaining right. that the neighborhood was too loud. 
so uh, there could be, I know we have an arts commission, but I don't know that its mission statement deals with the issues that you're bringing up. Uh, whether we need a new commission or an adjunct to the mission of the existing arts commission or some way for the city, not unlike the entertainment commission, to look at very specific issues uh, and make recommendations, policy recommendations to the board and to the mayor. Uh, and then getting back to, again, when there is development that is putting cost pressure on these neighborhoods that are housing our arts population, creators, providers, uh, that again, there is mitigation. How do you, um, how do you deal with the, the ghost ship problem in the sense that there are a lot of artists I know and musicians who are living in places that are not zoned for residential and that are probably not up to code. And that the minute somebody finds out about this, they are now being thrown out because, of course, we don't want to see another ghost ship, right? We don't want to see people die in a fire. That was absolutely horrifying. But the, the flip side of that is you can be so aggressive at cracking down on code that places that people are living and making art and making music are no longer available. And those become either self-storage or upstairs commercial or, in some cases, tech office space. How do you... How do you Tread that line. It is treading the line, yeah. uh, and we do need to find a delicate balance here. Uh, but we should make sure that the enforcement of safety regulations, which is paramount because we want to protect lives, is not used as a pretext for displacement. Uh, I think you would use the term. Uh, did you did you say heavy-handed or or, yeah. or a hammer? Uh, yeah, but that, we have seen that. Right. That's what we don't want to yeah. use the enforcement code for. Uh, it should be for safety. That's its intention, not for displacement. There's a uh, a place um, near 16th and Mission where there is a housing unit that is zoned commercial, but there are people living there, been living there for a long time. There are artists and organizers, you know, kind of the place that used to be all over San Francisco. They kind of anarchist collective, and they're being evicted. But right behind them in the same building is a tech office space, which is illegal in a resident, in a uh, neighborhood commercial district. You can't have tech office on the second floor. And, and they're still there. No problem with them. This would be called selective enforcement. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I got to ask you really quickly before we run out of time. Yeah. Um, you're against Prop H, the tasers for the cops? I'm against Prop H, the tasers for the cops. Do you support the police commission's current policy, the one that they came to as a compromise, to give the cops tasers under certain conditions? I would have voted no on the commission on the original mm -hmm. vote before they reached the compromise that led to the opportunity for the compromise uh, for the reason that I don't believe our law enforcement needs a new weapon before we get to the point that the DOJ 271 recommendations have been implemented and that we have in a very serious fashion addressed 
the training of de-escalation techniques and crisis management. So the POA contract is up right now, right? For better or for worse, it appears that it will be decided by the current mayor, not by the next mayor. However, um, there is a group I'm sure you've heard of. The, there's a group of activists um, led in part by John Crew, former ACLU police practices lawyer, and a lot of other folks, a lot of uh, communities of faith, who are saying we should not, we should use this opportunity of the POA contract to get them to quit blocking reform. And essentially, they have been using, I'm sure you know this, they have been using meet and confer to block reform. And then Prop H is another way to block reform. Putting that on the ballot is a way to block reform. Would you support telling the POA that we will not sign a new contract, giving them the significant financial raises that they want and that possibly we have to pay to be competitive? I'm not against paying cops well. We have some of the best paid cops in the country. That's okay. We should pay police officers well. But in exchange for that, should they be told that they have to waive the right to meet and confer on those 271 recommendations? So uh, the answer to your question is yes, uh, but let me preface it yes by saying that it's important to me and I think it's important for San Franciscans to recognize that we do not have civil society without the hard and dangerous work that our law enforcement officers provide mm -hmm. for us. It is a foundation stone and we need reform for the very specific reason that peace officers cannot do their job without a trust mm -hmm. of the community which they serve. Mm -hmm. And currently that trust has been seriously frayed. Mm -hmm. Not universally, mm -hmm. but in many ways. And we need to rebuild that trust. Number one, for safer communities. And number two, so law enforcement can do its job more readily and successfully. And that was the reason that I worked for years trying to bring greater transparency and accountability to law enforcement uh, when I was in Sacramento. Uh, and then I got shot down uh, repeatedly. Uh, specifically what we were trying to do was that when there is a sustained, and I underscore the word sustained allegation, against an officer of, for use of force, uh, excuse me, abuse of force, that the investigative file, not the entire employment file, the investigative file of that incident would be made public. And that was for purpose of building trust. If it's all kept in the dark, that trust is not going to be rebuilt. Since you brought that up, interesting question um, on openness. There's a lot of talk about reforming the Sunshine Ordinance, the Ethics Commission, the Sunshine Task Force, how all of this works. It isn't working now, let's face it, right? Sunshine Ordinance Task Force can hold hearings, but nothing ever happens. And frankly, the Ethics Commission is never going to impeach an elected official for misconduct because they didn't turn over documents. It's just not gonna happen, right? So there's a much simpler solution which is to do what they do in Connecticut and simply give the Sunshine Ordinance Task Force, and we could work on the appointments and so forth, the legal authority to order the release of records. So in Connecticut, if a public official is denying you records you think should be public, you go to the Connecticut Freedom of Information Commission without a lawyer, just as a reporter, and reporters in Connecticut have done this for you. You walk in and you go before the commission and you say, the mayor of Hartford has refused to release these documents. I think they should be public. The commission makes a decision, and if they decide the documents should be released, they have the legal authority to order the release of those documents, which can only be overturned by a superior court order. 
why don't we just do that in San Francisco? Get rid of all of the ethics stuff, that throwing people out of office, the official misconduct. Get rid of all that. Just say, we're going to empower the Sunshine Task Force to order the release of records. Uh, I didn't get my James Madison Award for nothing. Yes, I know. <laughs> but would you support that idea? I support as much transparency and accountability in the operations of public work, and this could be a way to reach that goal. Um, do you have anything else? Because we've been here 45. Yeah, that's okay. I want to turn this off and just chat for a second. Sure, okay. sure. Uh, and I think I just like that. Oh, no, it still seems to be recording. Okay, maybe I hit stop. There we go.